Good morning, Hello. beloved. This is our official start. I never got unmute, mute. It is uh, Sunday morning, April 19th. We are doing our study in Romans 5 to 8 called The Reign of Life. We've spent weeks and weeks introducing this section in the book of Romans, and now we get into the nitty gritty, specifically Romans 5 2 through 11. So let me read it for us, and then we will jump in. Hopefully, you have access to this handout that uh, is, is available on the webpage, too. It's a one page handout that will outline our material. Everybody know that that's there? Yeah. It'll help. It'll help you. Here's the text. Well, let me pray for us. Father, what a joy to be joined through this technology. Thank you for it. Thank you that our hearts long to be in one another's presence. That's because you put in our hearts love and affection for one another. And we belong to one another by the Holy Spirit. And we ask you, Jesus, by your Spirit to teach us. Open your word to us. Make our hearts malleable our minds teachable so that the truth of your word would do the work for which it's intended. In this case, in this text, bring us overwhelming confidence and assurance of your love. Thank you from our brothers and sisters. Thank you for the Apostle Paul, using him to give us the infallible, inerrant, and inspired word of God. We cherish it. We need it. It is life to us. Use it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the text, Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more... Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Verse 1 of Romans 5 is our big transition verse. We spent some time looking at that with the word therefore. Paul summarizes everything he's been saying in the first Four chapters, Uh, he's giving us the indicative, what is, there's really no commands in this text, there's a bunch of observations as it were, 
And so he, tell, he tells us that we are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's often the experience of serious Christians with a tender conscience that the more you grow in your faith, the more you're aware of your sin, the more acquainted you become with the deceitfulness of your own heart, this gospel can seem too good to be true. Really? God really accepts me? Can I really be absolutely certain that I'll be saved from the wrath to come? God tells me that he loves me, but how deep is your experience of the love of God? And so oftentimes your experience of your sin, your failures, is more real to you than the gospel. So Paul here wants to unpack a multitude of assurances that actually culminate at the end of chapter 8. You're probably familiar with the fireworks of assurance that end chapter 8. What can separate us from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ? Basically says nothing in heaven and earth. So the section beginning here in verse 2 of chapter 5 ends at the end of 8. And it's ultimately about assurance. Putting our conscience to rest. Filling our hearts with reasons why we are absolutely safe in Jesus Christ. So the, the reasons for the, the, the ultimate reason why you can be assured of God's love, assured of your justification, is the doctrine of union with Christ. Notice how verse 2 begins. Through him we have obtained access. Through Jesus. So what is the doctrine of union with Christ? We're all born in union with Adam. That means we're born dead in sin, under condemnation, slaves to sin, enemies of God, spiritually dead. And by faith, we are we, that person, as we're going to see in Romans uh, 6 and 7, that person has died, the one you were in union with Adam. And a new person has come to pass. By faith, we are united to Jesus Christ. So formerly, what was true of Adam was true of us. Now that you're in union with Christ, I do two hands. Here's you, here's Jesus. By virtue of union with Christ, what's true of Christ is true of you. And so if Christ is secure in the presence of God, so must we be also. The other thing is, Jesus treasures for whom he died. Nothing can take them out of his hand. Those whom he rescues, he preserves because he wants us. He loves us. He desires we be in his presence forever. And nothing's going to thwart the desire of Jesus to have those for whom he died with him forever. So that's the idea, union with Christ. Through him, and look at one of the first blessings of our justification, we've obtained access the idea is we're in the presence of the chamber of the king. This access, bold access to God, of course, through Jesus. What does Jesus have? He died, he rose, he ascended, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's entered the holy place. The book of Hebrews unpacks this in a lot of detail. And I'll call your attention to Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, which is one of the most wonderful commentaries on our access to the throne, to God. There the writer of Hebrews writes, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Not just a high priest who goes in the earthly temple to the Holy of Holies. No, Jesus has gone to the ultimate temple, the presence of God. 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here in our sin struggles, Jesus is right there, understanding, knowing what it's like. Everything that tempts you has tempted Jesus. And then he concludes, let us then, with confidence, faith, confidence, bold assurance, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When I am praying, I often frame my prayers with this very verse. Lord, I'm drawing near with confidence to the throne of grace. I'm coming to the place, Jesus, where you reign. I'm coming to the place where you are interceding for me. I'm coming to the place you, by your own precious blood and the power of your resurrection, have opened up to me the throne of grace. There you rule the world by grace. You rule it for the good of your church. And now I receive mercy because of your cross and find grace to help in time of need. That frames the nature of my prayers. I pray for people to have grace in time of their need. Anyway, wonderful verse on our access through Christ. We have obtained access, and then he finishes, into this grace in which we stand. We stand in grace. What's the alternative? Probably wobbling in human effort. We stand in grace. It's a picture of assurance, confidence, permanence, stability. By grace, we stand in the presence of God. We're not unsure of whether or not we're accepted because of what Jesus has done for us is absolutely sufficient. Here it's important to draw a distinction between assurance based on the work of Christ and false assurance or what you might call presumption. Perhaps you've asked somebody this question. If you were to die tonight, would you know for certain that you go to heaven? Remember the EE questions? Anybody have training in evangelism explosion? If you were to die tonight, would you know for certain you go to heaven? Some people say, I don't know. Some people say, you can't know. Other people say, oh yeah, I know I'm going to heaven. And then you follow up with the question, okay, well suppose you died and stood before God and God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And this person says, I've been a good person. I kept the Ten Commandments. God should let me in because I basically, through my own effort, deserve to be there. We would call that presumption because that's no basis for assurance whatsoever. We are justified by faith. We stand in the presence of God by grace, by the work of Jesus. So standing in grace, not wobbling in human effort, and if you're basing your justification, your assurance of being with God forever on your performance, the lingering question is always what? How do I know I've done enough? How do I know I've been good enough? And so people who are trusting themselves often have deep-seated anxiety and fear in their souls. So verse 2, through him we have obtained access into this grace in which we stand and, here's our part, uh, what's our reaction to this? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The word rejoice here isn't just your typical word for singing and making merry. It's a very strong word that carries the idea of triumphant rejoicing. The war's finished. We won. The enemy's defeated. We won the game. It's triumphant rejoicing. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What is that? The hope of the glory of God is code for paradise, being in God's presence. 
You may remember that the word hope in the Bible is not like the English, well, I hope so. Is it going to rain this afternoon and water the garden? I hope so. There's an air of uncertainty. No, biblical hope is confident certainty. It's assurance. And so Paul says we are rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. What is that? Well, it's the presence of God. It's being in the, it's being with God, knowing God, seeing God, being like God, the glory of God, enjoying His presence and not being consumed by it, all because we are safe in Jesus Christ. Paul refers to this in Colossians 1.7. He says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. If Jesus is in you by faith and you belong to Jesus by faith, you can be certain, confidently assured, Jesus will get you to the place of enjoying his and his father's presence forever. The hope of glory. You can see from the handout, it's assurance that finds expression in the word hope, confidence, certainty. The object of our hope is the glory of God, sight and enjoyment of God's presence, being fully restored to the image of Jesus, the work of our sanctification being completed, will be glorified like God in God's presence. So then we ask the question, well, our sufferings and all the difficulties of this life in a fallen world, far from indicators of God's displeasure or designed to rob us of hope, they are God's instruments of actually producing hope. So hope is one at the same time a gift God gives us. He gives us assurance by the Holy Spirit. But hope is also a product. Paul is doing this neat chain reaction thing where he begins in verse 3, knowing, how do we know this? The Bible teaches this. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. That Greek word for endurance is literally a compound that means to abide under. And uh, sometimes in your Bibles it's translated patience, and actually there are two words in Greek translated patience or endurance. One that has a, one that means abiding under difficult circumstances, the other that means being patient with difficult people. Two different words, circumstances and people. This is the one for abiding under difficult circumstances. And so the idea is, uh, you know that uh, that, that fr- some, somebody's walking along and they say, well, well how are you doing today, Mike? And I say, well, under the circumstances, pretty good. And the, the response is, well, what are you doing under the circumstances? Well, I, we can't help but live under circumstances. The idea is, whatever circumstances we are under, Jesus is with us. God's at work. God has his purposes. And so we know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. So you're abiding under rather than escaping. You're abiding under the circumstances, watching God work, waiting on God, trusting the Lord, as I'm going to show you in my sermon a little bit later, embracing the pain, embracing the sorrow, allowing God to work. That ends up producing character. The word referred to the quality of something being put to the test and passed. So a lot of the parts in your automobile have been tested. They've passed. They're strong enough or able enough or competent enough to do the thing for which they're designed. That's how God designs our trials. They are to produce character. And he says, character 
produces hope. So you have this chain reaction of things. Oh, life's difficult. You have trials. You're suffering. There's sorrow in your life. This isn't a sign of God's disfavor. This is the very thing God uses to produce hope. Because in enduring these things, we realize God is with us. He's for us. He's giving us grace. We experience his presence. And we are then anticipating the full realization of the time when we have none of these trials in his presence forever. And then Paul uses a pretty curious phrase. He says, and hope does not put us to shame. I'm not sure why Paul concludes this little chain reaction section with that. And maybe we can discuss that when we come together at some point. Hope does not put us to shame. One translation, it doesn't leave us shortchanged. That uh, seems to be the idea is when we hope in God, it's not for naught. Maybe what he's thinking, I'm speculating, is hope is invisible. It's invisible. It's an immaterial concept. It's real. It does help us through our trials. But we might come under condemnation or accusation from people who don't believe in God. You're just pie in the sky. You're not dealing with reality. Why should you hope in something you can't see? You don't know for certain. Uh, And maybe Paul is saying it's absolutely impossible for the hope that we have to produce that. We've leaned on the Lord and his promises and it's never in vain. You'll never be ashamed for trusting God's promises to be working in your life and to give you ultimately what he has promised. I'm just speculating there. But then he goes on and he says, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Two verb tenses to point out to you. The Holy Spirit has been given. That is an aorist tense in the Greek. An aorist tense is happened once in the past. It happened one time. You went to the store Tuesday. Aris. The, the verb uh, tense for, have, for being poured out is a perfect passive. That means God has poured out his spirit and it has continuing effects in our lives into the present. And so here Paul is directing our attention in contrast to our trials, our suffering, to the love of God. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Spirit is a gift. What does the Spirit want to assure your heart of? Ultimately, God loves you. You're precious. Christ died for you in love. Are we surprised that Paul uses the language of being poured out? Not a bit. When we go to the Old Testament and we see that certain Uh, Elements in the temple were cleansed or set aside or anointed with pouring. It doesn't surprise us. The very act of God sending a spirit to us is an act of being set apart and belonging to the Lord. Ezekiel 39 talks about God pouring out his spirit on us. Joel 2.18, Peter picks up on this on the day of Pentecost. Joel 2, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 1, I will pour out my spirit on you. So this is the language of the Old Testament, and it it conveys gushing, abundance, plenty. God doesn't give you a little bit of the spirit. He gives you all of himself through the Holy Spirit. We have Christ in us. 
Christ in you, the hope of glory, because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, is in us. The picture is spiritual refreshment, spiritual encouragement, being equipped for everything you possibly need in this life. I think the question I want you to think about this week is, if the Holy Spirit, if the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, shouldn't we know that experientially? Shouldn't we know that existentially? Shouldn't we be deeply aware of the love of God in our hearts? So if I'm not, why? What's robbing my heart of that grace? What's distracting me from it? The, whole, the love of God has been poured out into your heart. I think I ought to know that. I ought to experience that. I don't think it's unfair or unrealistic to ask of the Lord. I want to know that love. If it's poured out, I ought to be tasting it, refreshed in it, replenished in it. I ought to know that love deeply. So that's something I want you to think about. What's robbing me of my experience of the love of God? He's poured out his love into our hearts. So the Spirit dwells permanently in us. One of his jobs is not only to convict us of sin, we'll get into that a little bit later in our study, but to make us know how much God loves us. The Spirit does that by pointing to the work of Christ in the Gospel. But Paul doesn't stop here. He wants to give you proof of that love in the Gospel. And now we're on to point six in the outline. And he basically argues from the greater to the lesser, the fact that I was God's enemy when he called me, rather than threatening my sure standing with God, actually secures my standing. Again, reasoning from the greater to the lesser. So I think Paul's anticipating the experience of someone who, as they grow as a Christian, they become more and more aware of their sin, their rebellion, their unbelief. Uh, the Holy Spirit is showing, you know, exposing the light of the word and the dark resource recesses and corners of your heart. You're discovering things about you that you had no idea. This is, this is Christian growth. It's seeing more and more of your sin, being confronted with what God is like, the holiness of God, the demands of the word of God, the word of God penetrating our hearts, exposing our pride, our selfishness, our self-reliance, our unbelief, all of these things. And so it's easy to conclude, I must not be a Christian. Look at all this junk that's in my heart. And that would be the wrong conclusion. And basically Paul is saying, no, I want you, because he's going to get into some tough, difficult territory in, uh, in chapter 6 and 7 about exposing our sin and all this kind of stuff. And I think he's, he's, he's ushering us into these chapters trying to cloak us in an absolute assurance, of course you're safe in the love of God. Look at what you were when he saved you. Look at the condition of your heart and your life when he chose to save you. What were you like? Well, we get four instructive words in these next verses. We were weak, ungodly sinners and enemies. So let's unpack it a little bit. Verse 6. For while we were still... So he's saying, look, you're, you're beginning to doubt God could love you. Stop. Think what you were like when he first loved you. And there's something in my heart that says the reason God chose me and loved me is he found something in me that was lovable and choosable. He saw me as a pretty good person. And God, God loved me because he saw something in me that would commend me to himself. And of course, this is absolute folly. And here's proof of it in, in the word of God. All right. So, verse uh, um, 
Verse 6, while we were still weak, weak with respect to what? Well, weak means we are completely unable, powerless to fix our hopeless, sinful situation. Sinners can't make themselves right before God. They're weak. They're unable. And then he says, at the right time, in the right season, I think of Galatians 4 where Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When Jesus entered the world in the economy of God, it was the absolute perfect time, timing. Not least because the Romans had put roads all through the Mediterranean basin that got the gospel moving very quickly and rapidly throughout the known world at that time. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So if weak means I'm unable to do anything about my sinful condition, ungodly must mean I'm unwilling to fix it. I'm ungodly. Again, Paul is saying, you want to know what the love of God is like? Look at what you were in your former condition. You were weak. You were ungodly. And then Paul, Paul, like he has this little, um, this little sidebar. He has this brain, this little brainstorm. And so he goes into this little excursus. And he says, okay, think of this from a human point of view. So, he gets, so think of this, so verse 7 is sort of a parenthesis. Again, while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And he's saying, think about that. Who would die for someone that's ungodly? And so he goes into this little excursus in verse 7. One would scarcely die for a righteous person, right? How many of you are willing to give up your life for a good person? Mm, I love myself too much. One would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die, Mm, maybe in some extreme case, some real altruistic hero, but he's saying, in the norm, we all understand this in ourselves. We're not willing to give our lives up for somebody good, let alone our enemies. But God shows his love for us, and you can see what's coming. God shows his love for us in that, why we were good people? No. Why we were trying hard? No. Why we were seeking God? No. Why we were giving God our best? No. While we were still sinners, read, under his wrath, deserving judgment, condemnation, resisting God in our hearts, our minds, our lives. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for good people. Jesus, same what? Said, I came to seek and to save that which lost. The Son of Man came not to serve, but excuse me, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to die for sinners. That's really good news for people who know they are sinners. Okay, see his logic? He wants, he's, he's trying to bolster your confidence. He's trying to anticipate the fact that the more acquainted you become with your inability, your, your, your sin, the rebellion of your heart, and rather than conclude, well, I must not be saved, or God's going to stop loving me, or how could he ever save me? Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Go back to the condition in which he first loved you. What was that condition? You were weak. You were ungodly. You were a sinner. And he has one more word to describe uh, our former condition, and that is we were enemies. So here's the proof 
that Christ's death, unpacked in verses 6 to 8, his resurrection, unpacked in 9 to 11, secure eternal peace with God. The operative word for eternal peace with God is reconciliation. Here's his impeccable logic for the basis of our hope, our confidence, our assurance. Verse 9. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood. Guess what tense that is? We've been justified. Arist. It happened once in the past. Once in the past. Christ made a sacrifice for sins. A perfect sacrifice. You can't justify yourself by your behavior. It was done by Jesus. By his life. His blood. That's all the Old Testament sacrifices pointing to this one uh, absolutely perfect, acceptable sacrifice of Jesus. That's why Jesus cried out on the cross when he died, it is finished. The sacrifice has been made. The price has been paid. That Greek word tetelestai means the debt's been paid. If I owed you money and I finally came and paid you that money, you'd cry out in the ancient Greek world, tetelestai, debt's erased. No more debt. Christ has paid the debt we owed God because of our sin, through the sacrifice of his blood on the cross. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, justified, declared righteous. Remember what justification is. It's a double imputation, a double exchange. Jesus takes your sin and impute, you impute your sin to Jesus on the cross. He removes it. He, he nails it into his flesh. And he imputes back to you in exchange his righteousness. You give Jesus your F minus, as it were, if life is a report card. You give Jesus F minus, he gives you his A plus. This is the basis of our assurance. What am I like right now in, in the presence, in God's sight? I'm cloaked in the A plus of Jesus. God looks at me and he's absolutely satisfied. He loves me because of the righteousness of his son. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more... Shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? So Paul now looks ahead to the judgment day. There is a day coming when everyone will be held in account. The wrath of God will be revealed finally from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of sin. There will be a judgment day. It is a day of wrath and the day of terror for those who do not know the Lord. Could I come under that wrath? What about my sin? What about all the waywardness of my life? All the ways that I fail the Lord? Could I come under that wrath? Paul is saying this emphatic. Absolutely not. You've been justified, declared righteous by his blood and will be saved by him from the wrath of God. Again, Jesus preserves those that he rescues because he loves us. And then Paul wants to unpack this once more. He, 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 he wants you to see the logic of it. That's why verse 10 begins with four. He says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son. Again, don't base God's acceptance upon uh, of you based on the condition in which you are now struggling with your own frailty and foibles. Base it on the condition in which he first saved you and set his love upon you. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son. Yeah, it's one thing to be weak. It's another thing to be ungodly. It's another thing to be sinner. And now Paul has just amped up the stakes. What could be worse than being an enemy of God? Well, that's the condition in which God loved you when you were his enemy. 
I mean, that's the marvel and the mystery of the gospel. God loves his enemies. My goodness. And that should give us assurance. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. That's a passive voice. We don't do the reconciling. We were reconciled by Jesus, reconciled to God by the death of his son. Again, read that in parallel to justified by his blood, reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall be saved by his life. That's an allusion to the resurrection. Jesus lives forever. Ultimately, Jesus lives forever doing what? Saving and preserving a people for himself. Nothing's going to stop him from doing that. Our hearts rest in what Jesus chooses to do. He loves and he saves his enemies. We get beautiful evidence of that on the cross. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Just stunning, amazing words that, that, that Jesus could say that. The people hating him, crucifying him, mocking him, he says, forgive them, they know not what they do. Okay, we shall be saved by his life. Translated, don't forget the condition in which you were initially saved. This becomes impeccable logic for why you will always be saved. He raises the dead, he turns his enemies and makes them his friend. So you just ask yourself, fundamentally, in spite of the fact that I struggle with unbelief, I struggle with sin, I struggle to do what is right, do I fundamentally want to be, uh, do I want Jesus? Do I want to be friends with God? Do I want his salvation? Do I want peace with God? Do I want fundamentally the presence of God? Do I want to honor God? Yes. I don't do it perfectly in this life, but yes. Why? Well, that sure shows you that I'm not an enemy of God. God has changed me. And we'll get into the sanctification part in uh, 6, 7, and 8. Okay, point 7 on the outline. Last thing. Now we've come full circle. We're not just passively receiving the grace of God, the peace, peace with God, but this reconciliation truly embraced transforms us into worshipers. It's verse 11. More than that, Paul keeps heaping, he keeps building, he's got more to say. Let me tell you some more, I've got to elaborate. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received the reconciliation. Can't get away from reconciliation. He mentions Jesus, reconciliation. It's like the mention of Jesus brings up the benefit of what Jesus came to do. He's reconciled us to God. But notice that Paul says, we also rejoice in God. Not just the gospel. Not just the benefits of our salvation. And we should rejoice in those things. We should talk about those things. We should revel in those things. I'm going to mention those things at the end of my sermon today because uh, David says, the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. And I'm going to just talk about the bounty of God's dealing with us or all the benefits of the gospel, justification, a new heart, a love for God, uh, the Holy Spirit given to us, one another, all these benefits. Those are important things. We should relish those things. But he says we rejoice, same word from uh, up there in verse 2, uh, uh, yeah, verse 2 about rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, kokomai is, is the... Uh, is the Greek, it's that, it's that triumphant rejoicing. Same word now, because he's come full circle. We rejoice in God, in the person of God. We find God more and more utterly delightful, the object of our heart's 
uh, pleasure. Uh, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're really rejoicing in both uh, persons of the Trinity, obviously by the power of the Holy Spirit. We rejoice in God, his person, not just his benefits, um, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So, question to think about this week as I let you go. If I don't desire this God more, if I find boasting in him, rejoicing in him, difficult, uh, if I find my heart indifferent to his glory, if I find I love things more than I love God, where's the breakdown in my thinking? What have I forgotten? What am I fixated on that isn't producing that? I want you to think about that. Because I, I look at a text like this and I, I go, wow, there's a, whole lot of, uh, there's a whole lot of rejoicing here. I, I'm not sure that's my life. Consistently. And again, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts of the Holy Spirit. Really? Where is my savoring that love? Relishing that love? Resting in that love. Why isn't that, think about this, why isn't that love more powerful than my idols? Why do I love approval, looking competent, competent or whatever it is, more than the love of God? I, I need to be experiencing that more deeply. Perhaps Paul is saying, you're not doing enough theological reflection. Think about what you were like in the condition in which he saved you. This is a demonstration of the love of God for you. All right, so I think Paul's given us some things to think about. Notice that the gospel is always past, present, and future. Past, forgiven, justified. Future, hope, we're going to be in God's presence forever. Present, loved by God. So let me pray for us. Lord, we... We thank you for your word. Here in this very, these, just these 11 verses, we see so many of the rich, important words of our faith. Peace with God, grace, the love of God, justified, saved from wrath. Why shouldn't this produce confidence? assurance, certain hope. Why shouldn't it produce triumphant boasting? It should. Lord, the breakdown's with us, not with your word. And, and so we, uh, on an occasion like this, looking at this text, we thank you for your stunning patience with us. We know so much more than we're obedient to. We have so much more theology crammed into our brains than, than transforms our hearts. But we're so grateful that your spirit has shown us who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That ultimately we might rejoice in God, his father, our father. And follow this Jesus and make him known and seek him. And trust him. 
and find him absolutely more desirable than the sin that so easily entangles us. So we're humbled by your grace and how you use suffering to produce endurance. And endurance has a fruit, character. Character does not disappoint. It gives us hope. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for my own weak, frail, needy heart to be filled with this hope. That we be men and women, women living with this lively confidence. So I commit my brothers and sisters to you. Thank you for them in this time of suffering with this coronavirus, various ways they suffer. I pray you'd meet them and make their hope all the more brighter in relation to that which troubles them now. What a God we can trust. May your presence, your promises known to us by your spirit show us all their glorious fulfillment and security in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I'll see you in a few minutes, beloved. Next week we will do Romans 5, 12 to the, uh, towards the end of the chapter. We'll see that Paul shows us that uh, our solidarity with Adam in our birth can never separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Good night. Thank you. All right. Love you all. Bye.